Before we start with this week's episode of Let's Shape the Future, I just wanted to say a huge thank you for all of your support over recent weeks. Last week was a record for the number of downloads across all episodes, which I'm so happy about, so thank you so much. There's plenty more episodes to come with some amazing guests, so I hope you're really enjoying the content. Don't forget to leave a review and share with anyone you'd also think would enjoy. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did recording it. So without further ado, let's crack on with the new episode of Season 3. Have you ever wondered what goes into designing many of the appliances you have in your home right now? Well, our guest today on Let's Shape the Future can tell you exactly that, as well as providing a whole host of insights into the world of consumer products. Vanilla Johansson is the Chief Design Officer at Electrolux Group. So thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. It's going to be interesting. So let's start with your career journey up to the role that you're in now. Um, could you maybe talk us through the roles that you've had within businesses um, and sort of your path to becoming a chief design officer? Yeah, maybe I take you back even further um, by framing, you know, Penny as a, as a student. <laughs> and uh, actually, I was very average in school. I uh, I struggled and I com- I kind of realized quite quickly that I had to compensate through a lot of hard work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I graduated uh, with satisfying grades in the end for, for you know, all the, all the effort I put in, but not with a direct route to a university degree. And then because I took a sidetrack and explored just for a year, uh, an artistic education because I had that side interest. I just wanted to give myself a break. And that's when I found design. And I found an alternative into university that didn't judge me on grades, but judged me on uh, the applications that I sent in. And um, it wasn't easier because it took a lot of, you know, it was 750 applicants on 50 mm. seats and uh, first, uh, a, you, you know, numerous amount of samples and then four days of, of working at school to, to prove yourself. So it was not necessarily an easier route, but I knew at that time that this is the track that I'm on. So um, never looked back since then. And um, when I started studying, I... Um, I think it was typical for Sweden at that time. Um, I had a lot of uh, student friends that already had a lot of experience. They had been out working. Um, I remember one of the guys that worked at um, Saab Engineering and another one at Saab Model Making. And the third one had gone through craft school and made his own boat. And I felt extremely small in comparison to their experiences. So I decided early on that I wanted to go out and um, um, learn what designing was really about before I kind of graduated. So on that path, I was on, on um, I tested small consultancy, large consultancy, and mm-hmm. then I landed uh, at Philips Design. And that's where I understood that large multinational con- uh, companies, that was my forte. That's where I wanted to stay. And I had this dream that I wanted to travel through work. A lot of my friends back in those days, they were earning money and then traveled. And I kind of like looked at their experience and said, that's fantastic, but I want to combine these two worlds. So actually the real motivation behind my career is the wish for traveling. And uh, that has taken me through uh, three continents, 
five countries and uh, and uh, multiple uh, design positions within two large companies. And um, back in 99, I landed in Singapore and uh, that's where I stayed for 16 years. And I can honestly say that that's where my career took off because I, I came in as a senior designer and then I grew with the growth of the home entertainment and the DVD category at that time yeah. uh, and um, headed that um, experience area and uh, uh, eventually Electrolux uh, came and knocked on my door and uh, offered me an opportunity to uh, set up a design team from scratch and that was to me too good of an opportunity to say no to. So I jumped ship and um, then uh, after I'd done that for a few years, they brought me back to Sweden. Full circle for 23 years, almost on the day that I left. And um, then after a few years, I was offered to take on the uh, head of design function. And that's what I'm doing today. That was kind of a short, you know, speedy version of it. No, no, that was great. And and it's funny, I've, I've had an, a number of guests who have not done similar things, but in terms of gone to Asia, as part of their job and all of them have said just how amazing the continent is and especially places like Singapore um they they all say they absolutely love it yeah there was I, I mean I was between all the jobs I was one of those you know probably all my manager were extremely tired of me because I was always whenever I got a new assignment I was like okay within two years we need to talk again you know I always wanted to see what was the next progression not necessarily in, in, in uh, ambition or career, but just for doing something new, learning yep. something new. And, and when I came to Singapore, I mean, partly the growth was so exponential, but it was also an environment which was so wonderful that I never really saw reason to leave. You know, I, I really tried. <laughs> Every year <laughs> was like assessing the situation, but kept on staying. Nice. And um, so a lot of listeners will have Electrolux appliances somewhere in their home but for those that aren't aware did you want to provide some background as to who Electrolux are what you do as a business and and what your role in the business then entails so um Electrolux is a, a global appliance company um just to give it a little bit of a feeling of of age and scale so it was founded in uh, 1919 which is now over 100 years ago um, it is uh, present today in about 120 countries and it's selling about 60 million appliances a year. And it's not all under the Electrolux brand. We have actually a branded portfolio, um, but I would say 85% of our brands, or maybe even more now, is Electrolux AG and Frigidaire. Those are the core three brands that, uh, that we operate under. I think what's worth mentioning as well is that um, Electrolux has always been extremely um, active on the area of sustainability and had sustainability at its uh, forefront. And um, we have now a, a purpose and a, and a better living program that really, really drives our, our ambitions and our, our behaviors and the ambitions of uh, where we want to take ourselves for the next 100 years. Nice. And when someone says a chief design officer, what does that mean? What What does your day to day life day to day life look like? That's what I would like to know. No, just joking. <laughs> no, but the first time, actually, going back, it's it maybe interesting because um, 
a CDO title. I heard about it for the first time, maybe somewhere in the early 2000, and it was then uh, referenced to me. Um, someone told me that the CEO of Samsung had double titles. So there was CEO and CDO. And uh, that just showed how important design was uh, for Samsung at that time, and, and probably still is. And then that title started to um, started to exist in the design industry, at least in those companies which do take design very seriously and, and put design at a certain kind of like level in the company. Since then, I think the CDO title means many different things and uh, I couldn't help myself but Google it a while back and I checked it and it's actually, you know, chief data officer, chief diversity officer, um, chief delivery officer, chief digital officer, and then yeah, chief design officer. So it can mean many things. Um, I, I use it more um, externally, I have to admit, uh, simply because I do think it is signifying the importance the design has in Electrolux. But internally, I'm uh, more prune to talk about how I'm heading design in, uh, in Electrolux. And uh, to me, it is really, when you come to that kind of like, managing design on that level of scale that you have in large multinational companies. It is really more about creating the right enabling conditions and creating a really, really strong design organization. So sometimes I feel that I'm more of an organizational designer uh, than I am, you know, a designer of experiences because I'm very much in the in the forefront of, of driving those enabling conditions that the designers need. It, everything from the spaces they are in, physically or digitally, um, the tools they have, the, um, the capabilities, their growth, their career. There's so many aspects to consider. Um, and you have to partner with a lot of other peers like HR, IT, communication, to really make sure that the entire design operation is, uh, is effective and that we can deliver to our absolute best. It's, it's, it's really interesting, as you say, it's, um, it's also how the role is perceived externally compared to internally. It probably differs quite a lot um, from business to business. But um, like what we've got now is, um, so Penelope, you are a guest on Let's Shape the Future, but I and the audience want to know what has shaped the guest. Um, so for this part, I'm going to ask you three simple questions, um, but okay. they'll, help, they'll help the audience get to know you just a little bit better. So first question is what are your top three passions outside of work okay um one is easy photography nice. my kids are driving me they're driven nuts by me having to document everything um and i'm a little bit sad that i've moved from uh, my beautiful slr camera to uh, you know my mobile phone which nowadays <laughs> takes almost good enough for pictures so photography is a big big passion area um a, third, a, sec, a second passion area would be travel, um, which uh, kind of combines kind of nicely. Um, I'm really looking forward to uh, explore the world again. Um, after having lived in, in Asia for such a long time, I managed to explore that side of the world quite um, intensely. And coming back to Europe, I thought, oh, it's a fantastic opportunity to explore Europe again. And I got almost halfway on that. And Africa, which is a complete wide field for me, um, is uh, next on my uh, my map. So yeah, and third one, um, just good social 
environments with you know good food and drinks i'm happy happens to be married to a man that uh, is a fantastic uh, chef nice. not professionally but almost uh, so i'm uh, i'm uh, enjoying a lot of good food and uh, love we love having uh, guests at home and it doesn't have to be all fancy it can be very casual as well but and good those three are good passions Nice. Uh, my my dad's the same. My dad's a chef, so um, we used to just have um, some amazing food. And and the best thing is you don't need to cook it, which is the the best part. But then it means you have to do the washing up, which is the worst part. So. Yeah, you have to do the washing up and the laundry. I don't mind that actually. I I kind of like that as well. Um. So second question, which uh, you've probably answered it already. In the first, it was going to be, what will be the first country you visit when lockdowns and um, COVID is is no longer. Yeah, I mean that is actually a really difficult question because I think I got that question a while back and I said South Africa because you know that's been that's been one of those goal countries that I've never managed to get to. But now after this period, I think I just want to go back somewhere that I've been missing, you know, mm. before I didn't really try to go back to places, but um now I feel that that would be really really nice and i i mean i think a trip to um around singapore malaysia and philippines would be my my uh, wish at the moment yeah. nice i went to i went to thailand just before coronavirus and i oh, fell in love with the place it's so nice and the, the the thai people are so good as well um and lastly what is the best piece of advice that someone has ever given to you i think i have to i think i have to go with um one which i i heard quite recently and uh, it sort of got stuck with me um because when you work in design and you you um you you design thinker i mean mm. you're very prone for change you love change and you love speed and change should come fast and uh, this person um told me that he it was actually kind of like a peer in the industry and he says yeah whenever the team is getting very anxious then i tell them that they should imagine themselves being tied to a rubber rope and then they should run as fast as they can mm-hmm. but they should be conscious about the rubber rope being attached to the organization and when they come to a point where they feel that the stretch is too tight they should grab hold of a tree and then they should just hold on to ensure that they don't fall back and let the rest kind of come along and then it's time to continue running to the next tree. And I thought that was such a beautiful analogy because I think it's so important that you when you drive change you need to drive change in a speed that others can handle and to find that balance and getting people along with you I think is incredibly clever. So I thought I laughed a lot when I heard it. I thought it was it was really hilarious. Um but it stuck with me. I thought it was really good advice. No, days that, that is great and I've not heard of that before but I like how you're you're driving you're constantly driving change within an organization but also is is sort of the the matter of driving change but staying within the boundaries of the organization but bringing the organization with you so um exactly. it ticks all boxes um i was going to ask you what your favorite home appliance was but i'm sure you won't want to uh, upset any of the teams um electrolux <laughs> I, i can um yeah because actually that's an easy one and it's really interesting because um 
I think if you uh, if you take all the appliances that you have at home, um, you know, some achieve uh, things that you're getting really excited about. And I think before COVID, I would have um, probably been talking about, you know, the blender or I've been talking <laughs> about, you know, one of these things that gave you a quick instant smoothie, right? Mm. But today, you know what it is? It's the dishwasher. No, I, I love my dishwasher. I love <laughs> I mean, during COVID, how many times are we not actually making food for ourselves that causes dishes, but not necessarily making us use the appliances? I mean, we go straight to the fridge, we bring things out, but we're piling up these dishes. And before you got away with one load a day, now definitely, uh, you know, multiple loads. And um, yeah, our dishwasher and the one that I have is actually fabulous without sounding like a salesperson. <laughs> nice. Um, right. So moving on to um, talk about design and, and innovation, how have you seen that evolve across your career? Did innovation look a lot different 20 years ago than it does today? Well, oh yeah, uh, definitely. I think in essence, if in the core, design is maybe not so different in terms of like, you know, the, the approach you need to take, um, and the way you need to think, um, I often refer to even how I was taught design in school. You know, it's like it is still very relevant. Um, but the problems we're dealing with are so much more complex. Yeah. And that requires so much more collaboration. It's, um, it's you know, maybe when, when I graduated, most designers went out and kind of like, one man's company, um, you know, one person on a project. Um, it allowed you to be that sole contributor. It was in those days as well. You had all these fancy, famous designers that everyone knew about. And uh, they kind of like you went to that particular designer to get that particular style. And um, they were like brands, right? You see much less of that nowadays because, in fact, it's so much more, it's kind of moved from being that product experience to this um, ecosystem of mm. products, interactions and services. And the complexity of that really requires different capabilities to work together, even beyond designers, I mean, with other functions, because there is no borders anymore. Mm. And I think it's, it's fair to say that actually design is a cognitive capability. And it is a capability everyone is born with. But there are tools and methods and science to it that allows you by training to get to work as a designer on an athlete level. And, you know, everyone can run, but it doesn't mean that everyone runs uh, at a professional level, right? Yeah. Or everyone can sing, but it doesn't mean that everyone sings on a professional level. So, so I think it's so democratized and... Uh, it's so available to everyone nowadays. I mean, um, my daughter's just going to enter um, like a high school level, which is focusing on aesthetics and design. And and the thinking is being taught on, on that level. So it's beautiful to see how that shift is happening. Mm. No, it's, it's great. And um, I can certainly vouch for the being able to sing, but not very well, um, I think. <laughs> um, so it, in, uh, in today's world, what are some of the core components for designing successful consumer goods? Um, obviously, like as you mentioned, that will have changed a lot from 20 years ago to today. Um, is there a lot of focus on user experience as well as functionality? 
Yeah, I mean, I think if you actually think about it, what you need to do is first to understand what is what is it that you want to achieve. So, you know, are you um, are you just um, reintroducing an existing products in a different format with you know some added functionality, or are you you know bringing something completely new to the market, or are you building a system of products that all needs to be great on their own, or you know even more excellent together? All these different outcomes um, require a different approach, and. In all cases, you have to then look at what is the larger context uh, from a user or even other stakeholders. You know, who will who will be engaged with this uh, solution um, almost from the starting point? Because you may have to start thinking about, yeah, the user have their requirements, but maybe the service person has their requirements. So you have to look at it from multiple angles. And then you always have to look at what is the solution that is provided today and what's working, what's not working, what hacks or you know other solutions are there that does the job as well to kind of like understand the current context. But then at the same time, you also have to look at what are those shifts in society that may influence these things in the future? Is there new technology on the radar that may, you know, come in and, and make an impact? Or is there societal changes or legislations that will have an impact? So you always have to look at um, insight as kind of like what am I knowing of today and foresight in what are the shifts that we will have to take in consideration for because what we're doing when we're designing a experience is we actually designing for a future that has not yet existed right so within a certain kind of reach and I think in most cases we're imagining things in a five to ten year horizon. We conceptualize things between three to five years and we are implementing and driving experiences within, you know, one to two, sometimes three years. It depends a little bit on the complexity. I hadn't thought about it like that because, as you say, you're when bringing out a new product to the market, you're asking the user to adopt a technology or a function that they won't have had before in their home and obviously before it gets to that stage you need to think about what that function should be and then it gets designed and then it gets manufactured and then it gets pushed to market so as you say mm. you you not only need to take in the marketing side but also the foresight and no i hadn't thought of that at all and you, you mentioned there about how there's so many different avenues that you need to touch upon when designing products um i know that recently electrolux published the design DNA element series um, where you put a spotlight on each of the core components that Electrolux focus on when designing their products with texture, sound, scent, material, etc. Did you want to talk a little bit about why this series was done and, and the importance of highlighting each of those individual areas? Can I start with asking you a question? Yeah, go on. So what were your impression when you saw that series? My impression was I didn't know so much went into each appliance. Like, I suppose it's like as a user, you imagine a fridge to be a fridge. Like, you don't necessarily think so much about 
the sound when it opens or the the motor noise or the the texture of the actual outside or the handle or or the color i mean i like i've got a i've got a navy kitchen which is probably not that common um but it was amazing like on the color one especially to sh- see how they test so many different colors in different user groups etc and um really try to make each element of the de- the design dna um sort of special and and part of the overall design so it was really interesting but it was also really thought-provoking because you don't understand quite how much goes into designing a kettle for example you think it's very simple but it's really really not no and i love that you you said that because honestly i mean that is the reason why we made that production Mm. right because it is Design is such a confusing world. Mm. I mean, uh, I love, I have this favorite uh, sentence, designers, designs, well designs, design. You know, it is it is fitting in all, I think it's few words that are actually that confusing. So I actually try to use it really sparsome because it doesn't make any sense because I, otherwise it becomes smurf language, right? <laughs> but um, we have uh, multiple brands within within Electrolux and I mentioned the, uh, the core ones, which is kind of like 85 plus percent of our sales and each one of these brands uh, have a uh, formulated uh, brand design dna so we didn't do the production only as a production it's actually um it's actually the the foundational work is our brand design dna um used in this case for electrolux so we have one for ag we have one for uh, electrolux and we have one for for frigidaire and and these brand design dnas they talk about you know the the brand platform the brand personality and this brand personality should really inform all the touch points when you're designing for that brand and the values that are within really derives from Mm. that heritage of that brand to be really authentic and and really true to it and then we have articulated those values through these elements the nine elements that we have exemplified in the series and um why we did it uh, through these elements was to actually make sure that we're building this explorative culture which is so incredibly important because I think if you go back to the history of design especially if you take industrial design there's been a lot of just starting with form giving right and yep. you know you, just, you have that stereotypical picture of a car designer standing there and sketching forms but afterwards then you know how is it going to ma- manufacture what are the material it's actually much more effective in the process to start talking about what are the material properties that we want why do we want them you know we need to select these materials for sustainability durability or their beautiful properties and how do we then optimize the methods um, that we use for these materials in the production and what are the forms that will then make sense in how we are uh, articulating ourselves and then we know that multisensorial experiences are so much more impactful. I mean, I don't know if you've heard it, but simple things that pr- research has proved that actually matter. Uh, you will your your coffee will test different depending on what color of coffee that you're drink, drinking from, right? So, and you know that if you eat in a fish restaurant and you have the sound of the ocean, you actually enjoy that salmon much better than if you are sitting somewhere in a city and you're hearing the bus of the city, right? So, so it, multisensorial impacts us, and we need to continuously explore these things to improve these experiences, and that's kind of like a, a nutshell. Mm. no no it's great explanation and as you say it's 
it's bringing it's trying to make the user have that multi-sensorial experience but in their own home which is very very difficult to do um but I, as you said it's obviously um the design dna series highlighted a number of components around design but as you mentioned earlier i know that something else of huge importance to electrolux is sustainability um so how are electrolux addressing sustainability initiatives and how early and at what level is sustainability factored into the design of all of these products yeah so you, the sustainability if, if you look at our products i'm sure it's different for different categories of products but if you look at our products about 85% on an average is actually the CO2 of these products actually coming from the usage stage. So we have only over decades focusing on minimizing the energy consumptions, water consumptions, and, and minimizing resources, taking out harmful materials from our products and all that stuff, baseline things, right? And then I think we, we're realizing that that is super, super important. But if you're not, as a user, understand why the washing cycle should take three hours or four hours uh, for your dishes or for your clothing, for that matter. And, you know, we have these wonderful, very, very, very excellent engineers that, that makes these programs more and more efficient and mm -hmm. the programs are getting longer and longer but our, our users don't necessarily understand it and they you know use the quick wash of 15 minutes or 30 minutes because that's the time they have so you know how do we enable the users to understand how to make these more sustainable choices and that has to be built in in the interaction with the appliances or the applications and that they are experiences depending mm. on the the product at hand and um, we have a beautiful example with I've mentioned the favorite dish <laughs> dishwasher <laughs> it's it's actually designed nudging you to pick the echo program which is four hours long with a like nice green bar so it's kind of like giving you this affirmation that that is the longest program but what's more beautiful is that actually it's opening up one and a half hours the cycle is finished it opens up for a natural drying cycle so this it's giving you this kind of like feeling that yes i can trust this manufacturer uh, to uh, to do the right job for me and the dishes are getting clean and they are getting dry and if i have a little bit more patience i'm actually doing the the right thing so mm -hmm. so the behavioral science of of uh, how we're using these products becomes extremely important and then of course the material choices um you know how can we how can we make um the the materials we have uh, circular how can we make sure that we are bringing it back into the cycle how can we make sure that we are designing for repairability how do we make sure that the maintenance of the product is uh, considered because i don't know most people don't know this but we have a collaboration with Stena Recycling mm -hmm. and uh, that's a Swedish recycling plant and I don't remember the numbers but it was a high percentage of vacuum cleaners that was thrown away with the engine capacity still being above 50% and it is mainly because I'm making this hypothesis, but I have experienced this myself. It's mainly because we don't know how to clean the filters, mm -hmm. how to maintain them. And then the 
performance of the machine goes down and we're not satisfied anymore. And it's actually not for any, good, any other good reason that we don't necessarily know how to maintain it. So how can we maintain it? How can we make sure that they are getting a second life? How can we make sure that they are repairable? And that requires new way of thinking about it. So I think this shift happens, it's going to happen so fast that we will have to see more and more um, involvement up front, even before the project starts, because you can't solve a lot of these things in the project. I think there's there's a couple of things. So the the first point you made about the, the time on these um, machines is, I think, like me as a user, especially, I would think, oh, the the 30 minute cycle is doing better for the environment because I'm only using it for 30 minutes and not four hours. And it means that I'll use less water and all that sort of stuff. So as you say, there, there is that enablement side to users that needs to be done. Um, so that And you're understand. so right. And this is exactly the conundrum in that way, because I mean, I heard this recently, which I thought was a beautiful analogy. I mean, we, we don't understand why when we put something into a machine and we took something out of a machine, that the time, longer time would use less resources. We don't mm -hmm. think about that. But if we think about a hand wash in, in a, a dish situation or even a, a fabric care wash, then we know that if we leave it soaking for two hours, we know that we're going to easier, we're going to mm. use less effort of getting that clean, right? I mean, in dish care, that's very obvious. You take a big dirty pot and you put it in hot water for a while and you let it stand there, you're going to get it clean very easy. Yeah. So so it's ex exactly the same analogy, but it's very counterproductive in, in, uh, in many ways. So, yeah. yeah. No, exactly. And it's funny, you mentioned um, the partnership with Stena Recycling, and that was going to be my my next question, because I, I obviously I was doing a bit of research and I found that there was something called the two infinity prototype vacuum cleaner um, that's mm. made out of um, it's 90 percent recyclable compared to um, the normal 75 percent for a vacuum cleaner. Um, and the question was going to be you obviously like refrigerators, for example because of what has to go into them to make them operate have been notori notoriously difficult to dispose of. Um, so do you think we'll start to see examples of stuff like the, the vacuum cleaner um, where appliances will be closer to the sort of more and more will become recyclable and it'll be easier for, to dispose of responsibly? It has to be. I mean, there is just no other way. But I think this is so incredibly important that we are looking at it from a system point of view. Yeah. And we're looking at it from, um, you know, the system within a particular context. And that's where it's becoming even more challenging for global players like ourselves, right? Because, I mean, we have a certain system in Sweden, but, you know, there is another system in Thailand and, mm. you know, there's another system in Brazil. So how do you make sure that you are you know, managing and, and, and driving these uh, solutions in the right way globally, uh, despite that maybe the system situation is different. So, I mean, these are not easy things. Um, but if you look at the recycling and, and our partnership there, we learned that some of the larger appliances, um, because they cannot be just thrown into one of those threshers, I guess they're building bigger threshers nowadays as well, but many of them are kind of like, recycled by hand and then you have to of course make that easy but in the smaller appliances um, they are kind of like just through put through a big threader and what you then need to do is you need to design the product so that the parts 
are falling apart in its purity. You cannot have um, parts of products which are then with multiple materials because then it will go in and, and be burned. And then it's a lost, it's a waste, right? Mm. So it's really about understanding the different appliances and how they need to be treated. Um, but we, I think we also have, um, you know, where is the where's the shift towards um, local repair, 3D printing, you know, I mean, yeah. there are so many circular economy opportunities. I, I don't think we have seen the beginning of this mm. yet. Yeah, and I think to, to that point, design is such a huge factor of that in terms of um, how that will obviously progress over time and there will be um, more recycling aspects of a lot of these products and linked to that you mentioned it earlier about how you're a big advocate of design thinking to sort of along that process of, of design within Electrolux so for, for those that aren't aware could you provide a bit of background as to what design thinking is um, some sort of core components of design thinking exercises and and why the the technique is so important um in in the design process mm. um maybe i mean it i would say the term design thinking is heavily debated and yeah. i think the term is also heavily confusing because some people make it as synonymous to the double diamonds that was launched by the british council in 2005 uh, i'd like to look at it as um I mean, the story that I kind of like see has the most relevance is uh, when Stanford University was training engineers in these methodologies um, that designers use. And the students were asking, well, what is it that we are getting good at, you know? And the answer was, yeah, it is the way designers think. And eventually that turned into design thinking. Mm. And uh, of course, for designers, you can't separate design thinking and design doing because it's kind of like all intertwined and it's all messy. And, and it should be. It's, it's a highly creative uh, process. But what is so amazing uh, with design thinking and the way that it is um, kind of like sort of stepped out of the, the design discipline is that it offers a certain methodology to solve complex problems. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is, let's say, the opposite of analytical thinking in, in even that you need analytical thinking in some cases as well, right? But especially powerful in situations where you can't just use analytical thinking to solve the problems. You really just need a different uh, approach to it. And it is it is quite in in my opinion it is it's quite simple in the way that you have to constantly asking you know the whys um getting to the root cause of a of a problem getting it and then reframe what it is that you're trying to do um so you're looking at an a problem from many different perspectives to ensure that you're not just thinking of, oh, I can solve it this way, and then you run in a linear manner. You, you look at it from many different perspectives, and then you evaluating these different perspectives and close in on something that is working. And it's an iterative process where you highly explore yourself out to the solution and um, constantly looking at what you've got uh, with eyes of wanting feedback for further improvement rather than critique of mm -hmm. not uh, succeeding, right? So um, 
I don't know if that helps uh, in in clarifying it. That's a kind of like I think it's a mindset uh, more than anything else and a way of thinking. Uh, and then you have many different tools uh, and methods that that can be used depending on the problem at hand. Absolutely. And what I love so much about design thinking is that sort of the art of the possible, like thinking outside the box, as you said earlier about how you're designing something or you're conceptualizing something three to five to eight years before it actually goes out. And that's one thing that I, I love about design thinking is being able to just think, right, what could the future look like for this scenario? What does the, the end user want from this appliance, for example? So there's so much, and it, it's a refreshing approach, I think, um, to, as you say, instead of doing it really analytically, being able to just think outside the box and what is the art of the possible and what could we achieve? And and I think that's how businesses then become the most successful is if they have these sorts of processes in place because they're then the forefronters of innovation. And um, to that point, there's obviously so many amazing sort of innovation initiatives within Electrolux, but are there any examples of innovation across the group that maybe stick out as ones that you'd like to highlight? I, um, I always think that the most amazing innovation is the one that has not yet been put out there. You know, it's that never satisfying, <laughs> never satisfying um, you know, with the status quo, you know, that you can always do better. But yeah. Of course, there's amazing innovation. Um, I mentioned some already in our in our dishwasher, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Um, and and I think um, noteworthy. Um, I I remember maybe it just sometimes it's very small, but you know, in our um, washing uh, washer washers in uh, in Asia Pacific when I was working there, uh, we were constantly struggling with this pain point and irritation of um, not being able to open the door uh, of a washing machine because you always forget that sock, you know, that yeah. you always want to open it and you have to wait two minutes for the <laughs> yeah. door to open. And uh, th then uh, we discovered that with the size of the drums that we were getting at and the, the water level being so low, in fact, you could always open that door without any you didn't have to wait and that was that was a product that i lived with in um, in uh, asia pacific and uh, to me that was kind of like love because i don't know how many times that i could just open that door <laughs> yeah. but lately also i think it's noteworthy to talk about um, our um, air purifiers we know that i mean electrolux is um, looking at sustainability not, I mentioned the usage and the, the importance of um, driving a, a circular and a more repair-oriented way. But the other thing that we're realizing is that actually a big part of the challenges that the industry is facing. So if you are in the business of doing laundry, you're actually having to deal with the fashion industry, which is mm. quite challenged, right? I mean, the fashion industry is one of the most, one of the biggest challenges. Um, threats to us fast fashion is is uh, is an issue right yeah. and then if you look at our kitchen appliances we we're looking at uh, the food industry and that food industry is also very challenging so how can we as an appliance company influence beyond our products how can we partner up 
and how can we drive change uh, on a broader spectrum and because of that we have also set up uh, the food foundation um, which is linked to to food and uh, which is non-profit organization well working with world chefs and and you know really working on on helping uh, supporting uh, that larger scale of uh, of where the system is kind of broken. And, and the third area is uh, air, um, because pure air is, of course, extremely important. And uh, over the last years, we've seen that the more digitally advanced the products are, the more humanly they need to connect. And if sh they should be deserving a space in our home, they should really be feeling like they're part of a home. So we've come up with a range of air purifiers um, over the last two years. Uh, the last one was launched just very recently. Um, and and I mean, they're fantastic products, but they're also extremely beautiful. And uh, I'm so proud of the team that has uh, delivered those to the market. It's quite interesting. I hadn't thought about how, obviously, as an appliance um, provider, it's, it's kind of, as you say, you bring together all of these industries into one sort of funnel there as you say with the, the clothes and the food so um that's something i've not thought of before in terms of how you can then sort of influence both ends of the scale there so that it um it impacts stuff like sustainability well, initiative. one of the most important thing is actually to choose what we eat and making sure that our clothes are cared for longer and if yeah. we can be a part of making sure that that happens we we will have a really positive impact so that's important no absolutely and so just just before we round up um Penilla, I, I always like to get one piece one last piece of advice obviously i know you you've, you've given out some great advice so far during the episode but um one piece um of advice if you could give that to to anyone that's listening um that whether that be c-levels or employees or future chief design officers what would that be oh one piece of advice um i have a i have a favorite um expression and and that is really around you know um if you have a problem um get a diverse group of people together Mm -hmm. and set out a process. Don't necessarily worry about the output. I mean, if you actually, if you have a problem or you have a challenge and you set up a creative process to solve that problem, the solution will unfold itself. Mm -hmm. And so it is about trusting that process and give those enabling conditions to all these enormously talented people out there. And uh, we will see such quick resolutions to change. I mean, I was just listening to, you know, how we got vaccines for COVID out within 10 months where mm. no one could believe that to ever happen. And that was just because people were came together. So it exactly. counts high and low, <laughs> big or small. No, absolutely. And 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 just to 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 finish off, if, if anyone wants to find out some more information about yourself or Electrolux or anything like that, where's the best place for them to do so? Well, we have a um... I mean, we have our websites, um, but I, I would like you, you to uh, consider searching for um, about design under Electrolux Group website. Mm -hmm. That's where we have actually launched um, not 
just half a year ago, we launched a, a website talking about design at Electrolux. And uh, of course, it links also to the, um, how we talk about sustainability. So the, the group uh, website, I think that would be giving you a lot of information. And secondly, the Food Foundation. I, I, I love the setup we have there. So look that one up as well. Absolutely. I'll, um, I'll leave all the links to everything you mentioned in the description so it's easy for everyone to look at. Um, so, Vanilla, thank you so much for um, taking the time to chat with me today. Um, it's been great to get an insight into the role of the Chief Design Officer as, as well as understanding all of the components which go into designing the appliances that we all use on a day-to-day -day basis plus so much more. So, so thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thanks for having me. Episode three of series three is done. Next week, we're continuing with the theme of design as Didier Boulay, Chief Design Officer at Tales, joins me to discuss the role within industries such as aerospace, defence and much more. You don't want to miss it. If you've got a second to leave a review, then please do as it massively helps out the show. Um, but until next time, have a great rest of your week.